So please be standing. We're going to read Ephesians 1 together. Um, we are going to be looking at today just to renew uh, some of our values together that we looked at a number of weeks ago. Just want to bring those to our attention again, to refresh our memory on these things. But I want to really narrow in on this first one, a renewed humanity, through the lens of Ephesians 1. So let's read this together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us or chose us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. You know, in Greek, that is one long sentence. Verse 3 to 14. Paul just can't help himself. It just flows out of him. You kind of feel it, don't you? The, the, um, the, the intensity of this, of this passage. So what I want you to do just for a moment is turn around to two or three people around you and just name a couple of things that stood out to you in this reading. What captured your, attention, uh, your imagination or what captured your attention? So just a couple of minutes, let's have a conversation with each other. Go for it.
Let's, uh, let's take our seats and pray together for just a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul, the apostle, who wrote these words, who was inspired to uh, put pen to paper and express what he does here in Ephesians 1, this incredible overview of the good news of the gospel, of its impact, its power uh, for what Christ has accomplished. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we look at just one aspect of this this morning, that you would speak to our souls, that you would help us to tune in to your voice, and that we'd be encouraged, and we'd be refreshed, and we would be strengthened together in Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I remember a number of years ago uh, when we were still living in Canada hearing about a church uh, in eastern Ontario uh, that had become, at one time, had been a very thriving, bustling congregation, but over time had dwindled and had become a very small, aging congregation and didn't have long left. If it kept declining at the rate that it had for the number of years preceding, it wouldn't be long before that church would no longer exist. And this troubled them. They so began to pray about it. They began to fast and seek the Lord together and to ask for him to help them to kind of recover their purpose, recover their mission. Uh, and so they did this over a number of weeks, over a number of months, I believe it was. And during this season of prayer, as they sought the Lord together, a very small little church in a fairly small town of about 20,000 people, they felt that the Lord began to speak to them. And the word that they were hearing from the Holy Spirit was, take care of my lambs, which is, of course, what Jesus says to Peter after his resurrection on the beach. Take care of my lambs. Take care of my lambs. And so they inquired of God, what does this mean? What does it mean for us to take care of your lambs? And they really felt that it was, had something to do with children. And so they're looking around going, well, we don't have any children in our church. So how can we take care of them? And as they prayed into that, someone in the congregation had an idea. Maybe this means that we're meant to help each other uh, to start fostering some kids. We are retirees, many of us. We have large homes with lots of empty rooms. Perhaps we could put them to use for the kingdom of God. And so they organized together how they might do this and they began to foster children. Now, in, in Canada, it's probably the case here in Australia too, I don't know for sure, but there is a massive gap between the, the number of children that need to be fostered and the number of available families willing to foster them. And as it turns out, most of the homelessness and drug addiction in Canada, which a lot of it ends up in Vancouver because it's a warmer city than the rest of the country, in fact, some mayors across different uh, cities in Canada will actually give bus tickets to homeless people to go to Vancouver, uh, which was a constant problem, a complaint by our mayor in Vancouver. But they would end up there, and on the downtown east side, the poorest and most drug-addicted uh, postcode in North America. Um, uh, most of those, two-thirds of those people, those adults, had come out of the foster care system. Um, and so this church, by taking on this challenge, and it took them a number of years to really find their groove, it wasn't an easy task for them, but over a number of years, they fostered this little church, hundreds of children, and it totally transformed their church. They went from being an aging, dying congregation to a congregation that is 
filled with children and young families and growing again and having an impact in their community. And in fact, it, it got uh, attention across the province and across the nation that this church was committing themselves to taking care of the least and the last, those that no one else wanted, the lambs that Jesus was so concerned about. Now, I tell that story because I think that beautifully connects with what Paul is saying to us here in Ephesians chapter 1. What Paul says here and what this church in Canada did, I think goes right to the heart of the gospel, which is that we have a father who loves us so radically and passionately that he's done everything possible to remove every barrier in our way for us to come home and to be members again of his family. He has, Paul says in Ephesians 1, done everything he has needed to do in Christ in order to adopt us into his family, to bring us home, to make us his children again. Verse 4, Paul says, in love he predestined or he chose us to adoption, to sonship and daughtership through Christ Jesus, which, Paul tells us, was his pleasure, his good pleasure to do. Like God wanted to do this. No one was twisting his arm. He longed to do this for us. It's the good pleasure of his will. And so I want to spend a few moments this morning thinking about this incredibly powerful and radical statement. When you think about it, no other religion makes a claim like this. It's an explosive idea, really. This is Christianity, that through Christ, your Creator and your God can no longer just be your Creator and your God, which is quite a, you know, when you think about it, they're very distant, alienating concepts in a sense. They reinforce the distance between us. But God doesn't want to be just our God and our Creator. He also wants to be our, what does Paul say many times in this chapter, maybe this stood out to you, He also wants to be our Father. He wants to be our Father. Paul gives the game away in verse 3. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this makes sense to us, doesn't it? Because Jesus said many times in response to His disciples' questions, show us the Father, What did he say? If you have seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I think, friends, it was Jesus' mission, the heart of his mission, that through him we might come to know the Father as Jesus knew the Father, Um, that we might come to love the Father as Jesus loved the Father, and that we might receive the, the love of the Father in the same way that Jesus the Son received it. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus says uh, in John 15. um, That the same love with which the Father has loved me, he has loved you. The same love that the Father has for the Son, eternally, infinitely, everlasting, is the love that he has for you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you live your life in the light of that promise? For God to be our creator is one thing, but for God to become our father is another. And many other religions, in fact, many, you know, many Christians will say this too, that you can know the creator, you can know God in the sense that you can become his servant, or you can become his student, or you can become his disciple, or his follower. But Christianity goes further. It says we're not just followers, we're not just disciples, we're not just students, we're not servants. We are friends, and we are children. God has become our 
Father. Now, he's not like our earthly human fathers. He's a father who will never abandon us, who will love us with absolute wisdom and consistency and with absolute compassion. The word adoption that Paul uses here is a, is a legal term that comes out of Roman culture, not Hebrew culture. It comes out of Roman culture. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it shows that although we were not children of God by nature, Scripture is very clear on this, by nature we were sinners, we were disobedient, we are orphans. By nature we were orphans looking for a home, alienated from God and from one another and from the, the purpose to which we were originally created. But in Christ Jesus, we have no, we're no longer orphans. We've become children. We've been adopted in. And more than that, we've become heirs of God's promise alongside Christ Jesus. You know, in the prodigal son story, there's that elder brother who's resentful that the younger brother has come home. But in Christ, he, who is our true older brother, he's not resentful. He celebrates along with the father that the younger children, we you know, children who've gone astray have come home and found our place again at the Father's table. Paul goes even so far as to say here in verse 8 uh, that we have forgiveness, redemption through Jesus' blood. We have forgiveness of sins, amen, which he's freely given us. Um, and he says even further, I love this word, verse 8, he says that he's lavished these things on us. He has lavished them. This is not being miserly or stingy or just giving us barely enough. Like he has lavished his grace on us. He's lavished his mercy upon us. He's lavished his kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Did you notice uh, how many times through this reading Paul says something like in him or in Christ or through Christ, or by Christ, or under Christ. Like, everything in this passage is centered on the work of Jesus. But it's the work of Jesus that has been put into effect because the Father's will was that through Jesus, our older brother and our Savior, we might be brought back into the family and become like Jesus in our status as adopted children and heirs of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't often think of myself as an heir of God's kingdom. It's not something I contemplate all that often, but as we've been going through our Revelation series, we've seen this crop up a couple of times in, in Revelation 5. This is what um, John says, that, uh, where are we? You are worthy, Lord Jesus, to open the scroll, because by your blood you have purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Like there's this promise in the work of Christ that isn't just about forgiveness, it isn't just about dealing with our sinfulness, but it's about changing our status as human beings, giving us a new identity as heirs of God's kingdom. So when Jesus said on the cross, as he poured out his life, it is finished, the word there is tetelestomai, and it's a legal term, meaning that the debt is paid. Everything that needed to be dealt with has been dealt with. It is finished, it is done, so that the Father could make us his own, his own special possession, just as he did for Israel, and as he is doing now for all of us in Christ Jesus. Now, unlike childbirth, obviously adoption isn't something that happens 
naturally. It's a choice. Paul refers to this a couple of times. God has chosen us. He's predestined us. He's elected us. He's called us to this. Adoption is God's choice toward us. It wasn't something he had to do. He chose to do it. Adoption is a legal arrangement. And that's the incredible claim of Christianity that through Christ, at Christ's expense, through the redemption of his blood, in verse 7, you can be adopted. And this has been sealed, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. Again, another legal term, legally sealed, like stamped with a seal uh, that functions as a sign or a down payment or a deposit or a guarantee of what is to come, our full inheritance as God's children. So have you noticed in Ephesians 1 that it's an incredibly Trinitarian passage? We have the Father at work through the Son, and then the Holy Spirit comes and seals the whole thing, puts it all together in our souls, works in us to guarantee in us what is to come that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, as I said, Paul's using legal language here. In Greek, the word adoption is the word heuthasia, uh, heuthasia. And thasia means to make something, and huos means a son, or in a broader sense, to make you a child, to make you a son, to make you a daughter. Now, there's no reference for this kind of thing in the Old Testament as such. So Paul, as a Roman citizen, is drawing on his cultural background here, and he knew that in the Roman world, adoption was a very, very common thing, but it was also a very specific legal procedure. Um, and it's not, it wasn't done in the Roman world the way that we do it now. See, we adopt infants, preferably. We prefer them to be, you know, the younger the better, right, when we're looking at adopting a child. But in the Roman world, it was the opposite. You actually wanted to adopt someone who was a fully grown adult, or at least almost an adult. Um, and the reason for that was that if you were um, a man who had a large estate but didn't have any children, you had no heir to take on the responsibilities of the estate, to keep the farm going, to look after the slaves, and all that kind of thing. If you died without an heir, then it would be broken up and sold off. So he would choose another man, a young man, uh, to uh, adopt, one that he respects and admires, and he would go to him and say, I would like to make you my son so that you can inherit everything that I have, so that you can take on what, uh, take on what I have established here. I'll make it all yours. So when the rich man would adopt his heir, immediately several things would happen legally. Now listen to this. I think it's incredibly powerful. And I think Paul is drawing on this in Ephesians 1. Number one, all of the new sons, if he agreed to this adoption, all of the new sons' obligations were canceled. All of his previous debts were canceled. All his legal uh, issues were dealt with. They were transferred from him to the father. The father, the new, his new father, his adopted father, would take on responsibility for all of those debts and all of those obligations. The, the, the new son would no longer owe anybody anything because it was all transferred to the father. Secondly, the son becomes as wealthy as the father. He immediately gets the father's name, gets a ring on his finger, which would be a sign or a deposit, a guarantee of his future inheritance, uh, just like in the prodigal son story. Um, and he would immediately take on the father's name and become the heir of everything that the father has. Thirdly, the father becomes liable now for everything that the son, his new son, does. 
if that son does something stupid, it's the father who has to pay. If that son messes up, it's on the father's uh, shoulders, as it were. It's his name now at stake. Finally, the son, of course, as this new adopted heir, has responsibilities to honor his new father's name and to work diligently in his father's household. Now, you can see where Paul is uh, drawing some of what he says in Ephesians 1 from this image. And it was so honored in Roman culture that even Julius Caesar, some of you may know, who had no heir, adopted a young boy named Octavian. And Octavian ended up inheriting everything that Julius Caesar had after a bit of a scuffle with Mark Antony, but you know, never mind, that's not for today. Um, he eventually became Caesar, does anyone know? Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar at the time that Jesus was born. So all of this stuff would have been going on in the background. Jewish people knew about this, that even an emperor of Rome could become Caesar by adoption. Think about how powerful that statement is. And now think about what Paul is doing when he's talking about you as an adopted heir of the kingdom of God. It's even better than whatever it was that Caesar Augustus inherited, what you have inherited in Christ as an adopted son or an adopted daughter is greater even than the entirety of the Roman Empire. You are more wealthy, your status is greater, uh, your identity is more, um, more powerful in Christ Jesus than Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the world at that time. You see what I'm saying here? So when Paul talks about God adopting you, there are many other things that God gives us in Christ, but friends, I believe this is the highest of all of them. I believe that the doctrine of adoption is the crowning jewel of the promises that we've received in Christ. And I think that's why Paul says here, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and then what does he go on to talk about? Adoption, because it's the center of the whole thing. You've received every spiritual blessing in Christ because you have been adopted in to God's family. So think about it like this. Um, we've received forgiveness. Jesus' death on the cross secures our forgiveness. That is true, but adoption is even greater than that. What about justification? This idea that in Christ you are now, you now have an identity that is just as if you'd never sinned. You're completely free of all guilt and shame before the Father. But adoption is even greater than that. And this is how Tim Keller explains it. Think about it like this. It's one thing for the governor to pardon a criminal and to say, you don't have to be executed, right? That's forgiveness. It's another thing for the governor to then wipe away your criminal record entirely and reward the criminal with an honored position in his administration, you know, like to give him a good job. That's justification. But it would be far greater for the governor to adopt the criminal into his family and give him his own name and share with him everything he has to make him an heir of all his wealth, to bring him home, to make a place for him at his table and in his family, and that is adoption. So we've not just been forgiven, we've not just been justified through Christ, but we have been adopted as heirs of the promise. Are you with me? Isn't this good news? This is good news. Amen. The highest possible thing that God could do for anyone would be to adopt them. And what is, so this is our, if we are in Christ, friends, this is our status. 
We're adopted heirs. We're members now of the same family and the same household. In effect, spiritually, we all share the same last name. Right? So then what does that mean for how we will live together as a church community? And this is where I want to draw in our value this morning. If we could put that on the screen. One of the things that we said as a church that we would hold as our core values We have four of them, but one of them is this, that we want to be a community that reflects this promise, and we've expressed this by saying we are a a renewed humanity. In fact, in Ephesians 2, what Paul does is he takes this concept of adoption, and then he makes it clear what that means for us together as the body of Christ, that we are now a new family, a new humanity. We are one together in Christ Jesus. And this is how we've expressed it, that we want to be a multi-ethnic, and multi-generational community displaying the rich unity and diversity of the body of Christ. So yeah, we're all children of God, but we're not all the same, are we? And that's a good thing. The, The diversity of the body of Christ is one of the things that makes it so beautiful, that it is a multi ethnic and multicultural and multi generational community, a multi generational family, displaying the unity we have together in Christ, but also the diversity of the gifts of the Holy Spirit where all people are loved and valued equally as image bearers of God. If we're all members of the same household, we all have the same status. There's no greater than or less than in the kingdom of God. Even Jesus calls us his friends and his brothers and sisters, and the Father calls us his children. There's no room for ego in the body of Christ. Are you with me? A community marked by kindness, generosity, hospitality, and forgiveness. Why? Because that's the way Jesus has treated us who pursue belonging over perfection as we grow together in love. Recognizing, friends, that our church community is not going to be perfect, that we're going to have all kinds of warts and issues and conflict and stuff going on because we are human beings, but we're also children of God. And so we will stick together and pursue belonging and You know, we believe as we're sanctified in Christ, perfection together in the power of God as we grow together in love. So what we're trying to express, I think, through this value is the heart of the doctrine of adoption. That we are a new humanity, a new family in Christ Jesus. Now Jesus demonstrated this when he washed his disciples' feet, when he welcomed sinners and ate with them, but especially and most powerfully when he died on the cross. So in our life together as a church, we want to be like this. We want to put aside our egos and our titles and our positions and treat one another as beloved children, as beloved heirs of God. We need to put to get to death the older brother syndrome, which can so easily creep into our souls where we start to think it's not fair that they have more than I do or that I've got to divide my share of the inheritance with them. You ever seen that kind of thing go on in church life? I don't want to make room for people that I don't like, that trouble me, that bother me. That's inconvenient, that's uncomfortable. And yet, as members of Christ's family, this is what Jesus has done for us. And so, as we express our love for Him, that's got to look like how we love each other. Are you with me? Greater love has no one than this, than that... Some, a man lay down his life for his friends. Love one another 
as I have loved you. Now, I want to finish with a little story that I came across this week by Malcolm Gladwell. Does anyone here know Malcolm Gladwell, the author? Um, no one? Really? Oh, like, okay, there's a handful. Excellent. Um, this is what he says that I came across just a few days ago. He writes this, I went to a wedding this weekend back in my old hometown in southern Ontario. So it turns out he's a Canadian too. It was a lovely surprise. I didn't mean to draw in all these Canadian themes this morning, by the way. just happened. It was a lovely service on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. The reception was held on the lawn outside the church. The food was in large bowls along a long table, and all of us lined up, and we were served our lunch and then sat down on the lawn for an afternoon picnic. Now, I've been to a Mennonite wedding, and I know exactly what he's talking about. It is exactly like this. It's like you go get married in the barn, and then you come out of the barn to the pasture, and there's food on, you know, spread out on tables, and everyone just gets some food, sits down, and they eat together. This is the Mennonite way. Uh, so it's a Mennonite wedding, and Mennonites are a small evangelical community devoted to service, community, and reconciliation, which explains what I saw when I made my way to the top of the food line. And this is what he says, the people serving the meal were the wedding party. Have you ever been to a wedding where the bridal party, the wedding party, were the people serving you the food? The bride's father gave us our picnic basket. The bride's sister made the pulled pork sandwiches. The groom did the coleslaw. And at the end of the line, the bride, who had put an apron on over her wedding dress, served us the macaroni and cheese. The receiving line had turned into a service line. I remember not long after we moved from England, he writes, to this heavenly Mennonite town where I grew up. My mother told me that from then on, my father would be known simply as Graham Gladwell, not Professor Gladwell. Mennonites don't do honorifics. I think we sometimes overlook how ex unexpectedly liberating it is when a culture abandons the aggressive pursuit of status markers, the relentless accumulation of awards, the fancy prefixes, the ostensible displays of prestigious alma maters all get a, big, a bit exhausting in the end. And actually, it was one of the things I noticed coming back to Australia after living in Canada for a number of years was how many people ask you, so what school did you go to? Can we stop asking that question? I think it's intended to put you on a scale somewhere. Are you with me? And they only serve to drive a wedge between the haves and the have-nots. Far better to call Professor Gladwell Graham, and far better, if you are a bride, to have as your chief concern whether an apron will fit over your wedding dress. This is a very beautiful example of the scriptural notion made real, that when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, the disciples look at Jesus with astonishment, don't they? Peter says, you can't do this. This is degrading. You can't shame yourself in this way. And yet Jesus says, listen... If I don't do this, then you can have no part in me because if, if I then, as your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then this is how you are to live as well. You ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should follow and do as I have done. In the Christian faith, the highest function of leadership, I think of discipleship, actually, is to set a standard, not of how much you can achieve, but of service, and humility. So the bride, on the day of her life, when she's the center of all attention, put on an apron and serve her guests mac and cheese. Don't you love that? 
And we should do the same because as Christ's brothers and sisters, as God's beloved children, the Father has adopted us and that means everything he has is ours. That means I can give my life to others without fear of lack because I have a generous Father who's able to meet all my needs according to his riches and glory and I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus which means I have more than enough. My life is more than enough to share with other people. And yet so often, even though we live in one of the richest cultures in the world, we live in this poverty mentality that I don't have enough. That it's, if I give something of myself away, that's my loss and their gain. But in the kingdom of God, when I give of myself to another person, that's my gain and their gain. Because the Father honors those who live as Jesus did. And he provides for those who love as Jesus loves. And... I think this, if we could live into it as a church together, would be like that church in Canada who had decided to give themselves to the least and the last. If we too would have that same kind of heart, that same kind of attitude in mind, God will bless us abundantly and will enable us to be effective in mission. Because when we love those he loves, when we serve his lambs, he is glorified and we're blessed and people's lives are changed. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. I thank you so much for this beautiful, moving, astonishing passage of Scripture, Ephesians 1, and this incredible, indescribable promise of adoption. And I pray, Lord, just before we worship, in fact, friends, I'm going to ask you to stand with me And we're just going to take a moment to open up our hands to the Father to say thank you, Father, for all that you've given me, for all that you have done for me, for forgiveness, yes and amen, for justification, yes and amen, but most especially for the promise of adoption, that I'm not just one of your servants, I am one of your children. And I'm an heir of everything you have. I, I don't deserve this. But you've lavished it upon me. You've lavished it upon me anyway. Because that's the kind of father you are. And I pray, Lord, for those here this morning who never really known you as a father and who struggle with that concept, that, Lord Jesus, you'd break through our barriers, you'd break through our defenses, you'd break through our pain and our past experience, and you'd show us what kind of father you are, that you'd minister to our souls, as Paul says in Romans 8. We've not been given a spirit again that makes us slaves to fear, but we have been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh Lord, come and fill your people with your Holy Spirit right now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we too might cry out, Abba, Father. That we might know you as the Father who loves us. That we would not receive a spirit of fear or a spirit of slavery. But in Jesus' name, we'd receive the spirit of adoption. And that we would know our status 
and therefore we can serve others without fear of lack. Oh, Jesus, come now among us by your Spirit. Lead us to the Father. Father God, show us your heart. Show us your heart for us this morning. Every single one. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord. Friends, bless you. We're going to sing together. Thank you.